Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Jason Bolton, who is an Associate Extension Professor and Food Safety Specialist at the University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Jason is something that is not often found at a university, a generalist. While his focus is on food safety, Jason has a lot of experience and expertise in a wide variety of food science. We talk quite a bit about the different kinds of applied sciences in food science, and it feels like we only skim the surface of many of them. I learned a lot in our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. One quick note before we jump into our conversation. The Main Science Podcast is taking a break for August 2021. Once we hit September 2021, we will be back with more conversations with Maine scientists. Jason, welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. Like me, I know that you're not a native Mainer, but happily claim Maine as your home. So I was wondering before we dive into the science of what you do, if you could let us know how you got here and then how you, how you got into, I'm assuming science had a, a role in that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona, or, or one of the suburbs of Phoenix, Chandler. And uh, I've been vacationing in Maine to visit relatives actually in the Orono area uh, since I was a little kid. And, and so the University of Maine had kind of a special place for me in, in, in my heart, but also in kind of nostalgic, um, in kind of a nostalgic way. And so as a result of that, when it came to choosing a university, that, that was part of it. The other part was I was interested in some aspect of, of some sort of application science. So science where it was really applied to something um, that wasn't quite as, as a big a breath as um, or broad as like basic biology or chemistry or something like that. And I stumbled onto food science as a result of kind of multiple pieces of information. One was... I have an uncle who's recently retired from the University of Maine, and he told me about it. But also, I had been researching it on uh, the early days of the internet and and learning a little bit more about what you did with a, a degree in food science and, and what you could do, really, with a degree in food science. Not only just going into the aspect of food research, but also if you wanted to go into medicine or veterinary sciences or dentistry or anything like that, you take essentially all of the pre-med requisites as part of the part of the educational um, or the academic program. So I thought it would be a good place to start. So I started looking at di different universities and unfortunately there are no universities in the state of Arizona that offer an accredited food science program. Um, with, with as large of a program that uh, Arizona State University has or Northern Arizona State or uh, University of Arizona, none of them have uh, approved programs. So then really the next closest location was UC Davis outside of San Francisco. And so I looked at there and, and uh, that they had a great program and everything. And then I saw the out-of-state tuition for California and I said, I, I should look somewhere else. Um, and I, I ended up applying to the University of Maine also. And they had a very reasonable cost for out-of-state students and a fantastic program that had been around for a while, had a lot of history, a lot of really great faculty um, and allowed students to get early access to uh, research experiences, even as an undergraduate. So that's the, the long story of how I essentially ended up at the University of Maine. So before I let you dive into all the cool stuff you do, I have, why food science in general? Is that entirely or partly because it, it is so applied? Like, what was it that, that got you that route in the first place? Yeah, I, you know, part of it was that. Part of it was I, I also 
was interested in the concept of, of culinary arts, although I had no background in it. I still really don't have a background in it. It's very different than food science, but the Food Network was in its infancy at, at that period of time. And, and so I'd, I'd watched some of the, the more exciting cooking shows. It was, wasn't the Julia Childs of the past. It was more interesting, providing more science. Uh, another person that had come out with some online information within a, a the pilot show was a Alton Brown, who was actually a, a trained chef, but has a, a lot of interest in the concept of food science. So he would take concepts in cooking and in culinary arts and provide a scientific explanation and, and mentioned food science quite a bit. So that, that kind of sparked my interest in addition, knowing that I could get a job, even if I just wanted to go get an undergraduate, I could get a job right away. So that was really helpful. And then, and then the fact that you could, you would take all the courses if I decided I want to go into, you know, medicine or anything like that. So re really broad reaching type of program with a lot of different um, potential job opportunities after or academic uh, opportunities. So I know that you stuck around for your PhD. Before we get into that, I think, um, well, I, a lot of people hear me say this for a lot of different things. I think food science is, is not only not very well known by people. <laughs> In general, I think the UMaine program in particular is particularly not known. So if you wouldn't mind presuming that everybody is kind of like me and that they have no idea what food science is, could you explain that in a broader sense and then sure. maybe dive down deep into what you've done as your academic aspect of it? Yeah, that's, no, it's a great question. And yeah, I mean, a lot, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know what it is. And then the other assumption is that food science is, is kind of a nutrition-based program. And, and, and however, we are, we work very closely with the nutrition faculty. Food science, opposed to focusing on uh, health attributes uh, with food and, and, and things like that, we really focus on all the science that goes behind development of new foods or existing foods or anything like that. And really the way, best way to describe it is actually using the really valuable Wikipedia definition of food science, which is the scientific discipline in which biology, chemistry, physical sciences are all used to study various aspects of food. So a great example is, you know, how do you create a salad dressing where the oil and the vinegar don't separate? Well, there's a ton of food science that goes into that. In fact, there are researchers that spend their entire careers looking at what's called emulsions, where it's that mixing of um, water type or water-like ingredients and fat-like ingredients. And, and so food scientists study any aspect of that. It could be aspects in, in meat science. It could be aspects of seafood, food safety, microbiology, chemistry. Uh, like I, there's even areas of sensory analysis, you know, how do people, the psychological aspect and um, how do people perceive foods? So that it just kind of goes off in all these different areas of, of some of the major science uh, silos, but it's all applied towards the media of food. Would engineering fall into that? Yeah, yeah, that's one I missed. Absolutely. So the not only the manufacturing of food, so that that the massive amount of engineering that goes into the equipment, but also the massive amount of engineering that goes into understanding how do we have a rapid flow or continuous flow of processing of food? You know, how are things going to flow through pipes? How are the, how can they be pumped? Um, how do you get air into food or how do you get volume into food? Things like that. There's a whole cooking of food. Cooking of food is actually a, a lot of engineering and a lot of thermodynamics. Um, and it's one of the things that I, I focus on for the seafood industry. 
So I know that you've presented at the festival as part of our, what seems to be always present aspect of beer. Um, so that's one aspect that I know you focused on. You just mentioned the seafood industry. I'm pretty sure you've worked with blueberry folks. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's a part of Maine food uh, ag- and agriculture that you haven't worked with. So if you, if you just want to take the baton and let me know what you're doing now or, or what you've done in the past, and then I'll ask you questions more specifically about those. Yeah, no, you're, you're correct. I mean, the brewing industry is kind of this ever, ever going research collaboration. Um, and so that's still continuing. I've, we have, um, I have now my third master's student who's working on a, a fermentation related project. And um, so I've had students that are working on very specific microbes that go into a certain style of beer. And they were looking at new methods for analysis of those microbes, in addition to characterization of the types of things that these these, these yeasts produce as they ferment in um, beer media. And I've had, I had a student that also developed um, a new methodology for analyzing bacteria, um, bacteria that's supposed to be there, not the bacteria that could cause beer to spoil. And so that, that student has now gone on to accept a lecturer position at the university. And then I have a new student that is working on looking at mixed culture. So where you might have uh, bacteria and yeast working kind of in symbiosis to create really neat flavor profiles. And so he's developing a new method for analysis of those and characterization of those uh, microbes in beer. So beer has been a big thing and there's been, uh, it's been good for funding and stuff like that. But other, other research, I mean, always ever present is, is food safety. So we, we do a lot of projects related to produce safety, related to seafood in some aspects. Uh, and sometimes they're not always research projects. Sometimes we apply for grants that are for educational purposes. So we just received, my colleague who's the PI, uh, Dr. Hob Machado, just received a USDA grant for educating uh, folks out there around food safety plans for their farms. So that's one of the things that we'll be looking at. Um, we're working on another project with farms, looking at their concept of new rules uh, and their understanding of new rules related to produce safety. So what's grown on a farm and how do we maintain the safety of it? Um, so those are some of the other things that I've been working on. And then I, outside of research, I, I work individually with a lot of companies to help them problem solve or develop a new process or product and, and things like that. And so the seafood world is, is something that's very, um, very present in Maine and therefore I'm, I'm kept pretty busy by them. Are you doing both animal seafood and and the vegetation seafood when people ask you yeah i've done a little work with with seaweed and we've worked i've worked with several companies that produce seaweed in various forms so yeah absolutely in addition to uh, obviously lobsters and and salmon and things of that nature a lot of a lot of molluscan um shellfish so i realized i failed to mention that you're actually on the faculty at the cooperative extension. And I, what I can't remember is if you have a, a joint appointment in, in UMaine faculty as well. So maybe you could explain a little bit about, you, you know, you said you've done a bunch of work with the public. I don't think most people think of professors at a university doing that kind of work. And I know it's a, it's a special feature of cooperative extension in particular, um, but you seem to be straddling it quite a bit between the research and also outreach and education. So my, my appointment is actually with Cooperative Extension and the main business school. Um, so my part of my, one of the hats I wear is as a food safety specialist, I work with food companies and educate food companies and that's the Cooperative Extension realm. And so Cooperative Extension is 
imagine it as another college at the university. So, you know, we have natural sciences, forestry, and agriculture. That's where food science lies within that college. There's the engineering college, there's liberal arts and sciences, there's education. Um, so we have all these different colleges that, with, that are within the university that have all these academic programs. There's the main business school, which is another college. And so Cooperative Extension is the college basically where they, instead of focusing on the typical 18 to let's say 25 year old students, graduate students and so forth, they work with their, uh, with the public. That's, those are their students. So it could be in the form of youth, it could be in the form of people that own companies or farms or, um, or diff work for different nonprofits or for-profits or state government or, or federal government. And they work to basically educate them in various ways um, related to not only the research they do, but also research that is done at the University of Maine. They bring that to the public, utilize that to help educate the public and, and better their lives. And so that's the kind of cooperative extension piece. I, I work in the area of food safety and food science. So educating a lot of processors and producers of food, appropriate ways to do things. We teach USDA and FDA courses um, that are required in certain areas. And then in, in, the, as in the main business school, um, I teach programs, I teach classes in innovation. So I run, I'm the area coordinator and I run the innovation program out of the main business school. How hard is it? I mean, your background, I don't actually remember what your PhD is, but what in you have- science. It, so, but it, didn't you have to focus on one specific area? With, mm -hmm. Like all PhDs do that. How hard is it to bounce around from beer to shellfish to business uh, and innovation applications to teaching about USDA stuff, et cetera, et cetera? Like that is a very wide yeah. berth <laughs> from which that you have to work. Yeah, you know, it, it is. That's it's a, a, a very good description. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's turning, I would say it's, it's turning on different parts of your brain, even though, you know, it's all, it's all housed in kind of the same location, but it's being able to understand it and, and also look for where things, you know, create a, a nice for, uh, marriage or relationship of different subjects, but it is, it is difficult. And even if you just focus on the food side, take away the innovation business side and you focus on the food, it, it is difficult to be a generalist, you know, to, to be able to help people. Um, with specific regulations related to seafood and then turn on a different part of your brain and say, okay, now I'm, we're working on meat and poultry. So there are certain things that are just stored there uh, because of repetition. And, and, and a lot of times it's just knowing where to look for the information and then how to process the information. So I think that's the key part. And then never being complacent with, I, I know enough. Let's, let's just stop there. So it's constantly uh, educating yourself about something new. The, some of the newer newer things I've had to learn in the last couple of years have even been around uh, beverages. So learning more about not only the typical beverages that are out there, but now all these people are producing craft beverages. When you say craft beverages, I'm I'm assuming you don't mean alcohol based. You're talking just across the board. Some of them alcohol based, but yeah, you know, non alcoholic seltzers and um, lemonades and things like that. I'm just going to go into the weeds here. Is it difficult to figure out some of the taste aspects and the sensory aspects because that can be so individual to each person? So how do you advise someone how to do things with minimal tweaking, I guess, of their product? Yeah, no, I mean, sensory science, I don't ever claim to be an expert in that area, but that is, um, 
difficult areas. So, you know, a lot of it is making sure that they are testing it with their particular clientele, you know, so someone who might actually consume it. You're relatively young in the world of academics, I think, which, you know, people can take from that what they want, but you've been doing this for a while. Do you feel like you're getting a really good sense or expertise in one area or another, and you get that just long enough that you then have to switch into something else? Yeah, I've been doing this for about 11 years now. And and yes and no. I mean, some areas, absolutely. And, and sometimes it's because, a, you know, maybe a fad has died um, or it's become less popular. And so then it's switching gears to figure out what's the next interesting thing. And, you know, and, and a lot of academics have to kind of reinvent themselves. You know, I, I look at faculty when I was starting on as a student, there were still faculty that were here as a result of the big kind of boom and wanting to support the poultry industry, which has since uh, gone by the wayside in Maine. I mean, Maine used to produce a, a massive amount of poultry and poultry products. You know, drive anywhere in the state of Maine, and you're going to see, you know, huge buildings where they would store poultry, you know, live poultry. And so there, there are faculty that have had to reinvent themselves who were hired specifically to support that industry in the area of research and teaching. And, you know, they've had to reinvent themselves. My uncle's a great example who was hired as a, a poultry scientist and then, you know, retooled and became um, the director of the Lobster Institute and has, has completed and, and uh, researched all kinds of things about lobsters uh, and, and made some pretty big impact within the state from some of his research and outreach. Is there any part of the state of Maine that you haven't reached? And I ask that because I know agriculture is, is significant in large parts of the state. And I, from, from my sense, is, uh, food innovation and pop products are coming from all over as well. And I'm just wondering if you are seeing that too. I mean, I think I've, I've been just about everywhere. Every once in a while, someone will say, oh, you know, I, I live in this town and I can't tell you where that is. I, I don't know any of the townships. Uh, so, you know, when, when I get into letters and numbers, that, that usually confuses me. Although I do have a pretty good idea where those are located in the state. I would say, you know, I, I, I tend to gravitate a little bit more to Southern Maine only because the, the concentration of businesses are there. However, you get these little pockets of, of businesses where I'll go and visit. You know, I tend to not try to travel three hours to go visit one company unless I'm there for multiple days or something. But you know, typically I can go and find pockets and you know, they could be the mid-coast area, it could be you know, Belfast or down east, or or you know, when I go up north visiting several farms or processors and things like that. So yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity, very lucky opportunity to visit all places in, in Maine. And even um, because of some of the work that I do in Atlantic Canada, uh, elsewhere in the U.S., or some international, you know, seeing those ties back to Maine has been really uh, exciting, too. Do you have a favorite project or product that you've worked on in the last 11 years that, um, that not only struck you as really fascinating from like a science aspect or a food aspect, but then also really struck it big? I'm asking this not having any idea if that's even a reasonable question. Uh, yeah, that's a reasonable question. Yeah, I mean, you know, th there are organizations that I've really enjoyed working with. Um, and, and for the most part, the lobster industry in, in general, I've really enjoyed working with very nice people. Uh, you know, I, I have students now that work in, in for various companies. And, and same thing with some of the uh, salmon processing I have students that work for them. But the lobster industry has been really exciting. Uh, uh, you know, various companies that are 
have sold or um, are currently in business. And so there's a whole bunch of them that I've worked with across the state, pretty much every large manufacturer of lobster and, and, and most even smaller manufacturers of lobster and lobster products. The smoked salmon industry, I've learned a lot and uh, that's been exciting to work with. And, and so there's quite a few different processes, the biggest being duck trap. So I've worked a fair amount with them and, and we've done, we've trained a lot of their folks on um, some of the FDA requirements. And then, you know, over the last probably seven or eight years, I've worked with a company called Good to Go down in Southern Maine and they produced, they produce um, camping food. It's dry camping food and it's really gourmet. So that's been a great company and they've really become very popular. Um, I'm curious, when you were growing up in Arizona, did it ever occur to you that seafood would play such a large part of your professional life? Uh, no. I kind of thought that might be true. <laughs> I mean, is there, is there anything that you did back when you were growing up that, that is a direct link to what you're doing now science-wise? I mean, I know culturally and, and climate-wise, it's very different. Um, but that's, it, you're pretty far afield from where you started. Yeah, that's accurate. I would say that, you know, I, there was an aspect of maturing and, and, and re, kind of reinventing uh, of myself, I think, when I came to Maine, because it is so different. Um, and so it's adapting. You know, I grew up in a place where there are two seasons, um, hot and then less hot. So moving from that and extreme heat, and yes, it does get cool in Arizona and the uh, in some cases, cold, you get a little frost in the winter. But other than that, it's just very hot. To Maine, where there are seasons. Um, so even just that adaptation alone, let alone any of the cultural changes that, that uh, you know, have been really uh, fascinating uh, in, in Maine. I mean, Maine has so many different cultural, iconic cultural things and accents all across the state, which I think is really fascinating for a state that's a good-sized state, but, you know, it's not... Arizona or Texas or anything like that. I mean, it's, it's, so it's pretty amazing. And then, yeah, the coast. I mean, that, I spent a lot of time in San Diego. It's still very different coastal community as, as, as West coast versus East coast. So yeah, I, I can't think of anything. I mean, I always enjoyed the ocean on the West coast. And when we came to Maine, I always enjoyed being in Maine. So, you know, the, the trees, the, I, every once in a while during the summer, I get a, a smell that's very specific to pine trees. And it's just, to me, it's Maine. Do you have any, I, I remember one time when I was at the Smith Center, we were, you, we, you gave a, a, whoever we were hosting a tour of the very small kitchen facility that has since been replaced, I think, with a much, much more impressive, much more functional one. But there was things with blueberries um, and, and kind of different uh, different products with blueberries. And I, I bring that up, number one, because I think, um, you know, Maine and wild blueberries is really just one of these extraordinary cool things that we have that most places don't. Um, but also, I know it's it's been a long time goal for the blueberry folks to find another product for them because the shelf life and the, you know, the fresh doesn't work for very long. So I'm just curious if there's been things since that time, I, I want to say it was eight or nine years ago, that that you could use as an example, if you can talk about it, that put, is a good example of different ways that you're working with a large scale industry as opposed to one company. So, with, you know, with blueberries, your point's exactly, vast majority of them go to frozen and then it, it is difficult to, to distribute a relatively delicate um, 
you know, fresh product that doesn't have a very long shelf life. So that's something they've struggled with. There are things that I think they're uh, improving upon, but yeah, it, it is figuring out a way to, to do value added where blueberry is the forefront of flavor and color and things like that. So it doesn't just become an inclusion of something. It, it truly is kind of the star of it still. Uh, and there, there, are being, there are some products that are being developed at the university with that effort. In addition, I think, I think blueberries go so well as not only a fruit, a standalone fruit, but also in, in other kind of dessert products when they're done right. And, you know, blueberry jams and things like that are always fantastic. But I think a product that we worked on a long time ago was a product that won a national competition. That was actually when I was a student. And that was a, a blueberry frozen yogurt bonbon. And that was one of those things that we, we tried to make a go of it as a, as a food company. And, and manufacturing was relatively difficult. Also, I was working on my PhD at the time, and that was kind of difficult to balance trying to do that and, and the PhD work. But I think those type of products, I think, have the ability to really showcase blueberries as a major ingredient to something um, with a very long shelf life, a frozen product like that. Without, of course, there, there are quite a few different hurdles that go along with that. But I think those type of products are really interesting. I've worked with some companies that were doing some really interesting things around drying of blueberries and, and kind of a unique process and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I, I hope that some of these new products are going to be coming out soon. So I'm going to make you talk about the, you said it was a blueberry bonbon. Maybe you could step us through, I, I'm not, um, I'm not surprised you couldn't do that and your PhD work, just as an aside, <laughs> you know, you already have more than a full-time job doing your PhD work. How, how do you get to the point where you, you say, okay, we've got this product. How do we then manufacture it? Because first you have to get to the product. So was it a, was it trial and error? Was it, we need more desserts in the world? Was it like, how, how did you get first to the bonbon part yeah. to decide that? Well, it was, a, it was a capstone course for my undergraduate and uh, actually another faculty member here who's our food microbiologist. We were sitting around the table 16 years ago or something like that. And for the capstone course, we had to develop a, a new food product and, and walk it through, you know, take you take the product through what it would have to, what, the process you would have to go through in order to develop a new product for a company or organization. Understand marketing, understand marketing trends, sensory analysis, you know, the product development process, all those things. And we were sitting around the table and, you know, blueberries had just started to really resurface as a, as a really functional food, food that's good for you and has all kinds of wonderful health benefits and anthocyanins and you know, things like that. So we were looking at those and, and where could we utilize those? And I told a story how uh, for the longest time, my um, uncle had been buying frozen blueberries from a local producer and someone gifted him a 10 pound bar of dark chocolate. And I think it was more of a gag joke, but um, he was determined to utilize it in any way possible. And if you've ever seen a 10 pound bar of chocolate, it's like this thick. So you have to use like a chisel to break off any pizza, pieces of it. So, so anyway, <laughs> for dessert, very commonly, you would get a bowl full of blueberries and a hunk of melted chocolate. And it was a fantastic pairing, this dark chocolate and the blueberries. And so I brought that comment up and uh, my colleague, uh, Jen Perry, Dr. Perry said, you know, I, I, what, yogurt is becoming as a functional food, very popular. And so we started thinking about combinations of that. And then eventually this kind of bite-sized yogurt, dark chocolate, blueberry thing popped out of it. Um, and so 
looking at those trends, the people wanted a more functional dessert option. When you go to the freezer aisle, it's just before. Now it's very different. Before it was ice cream. You know, you might get the occasional frozen yogurt, but nothing that really had quote unquote health benefits to it. And so that's kind of the process that we started. And then it was a little bit of trial and error to try to get the formulation right. Uh, you know, you do one thing and you have to then tweak another thing and making sure it has a long shelf life. It can, it can survive normal shipping conditions and things like that. But once we got out of that class, um, we decided to enter with an, a few other students, enter a national competition. We ended up winning the competition, um, which is at a, a very large food science conference. About 25,000 people attend the conference every year. So that was kind of exciting. And then it was reformulating it so that we could manufacture more than 50 at a time. And we got to the point where in uh, a 10 hour shift, we were doing about 3000 units. Holy cow. Yeah, there's a lot of bonbons. I am particularly impressed that this came out of a senior capstone project. Number one, just because it's, it's, really, it's a really great way to, to have a, a final piece to what you're doing in college and bring all of these pieces together. But it also uh, brings me back to what you said that you were looking for something that was very applied. So you had to do all of these different pieces together. Do you think students nowadays have the same process and that they might have more success or the same success of bringing something to, pro to, to full product after their senior capstone? I mean, is the same yeah, process yeah. going on now, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, it is. I have the same classes being offered. And, and now, which, which is neat, um, with my, the other hat that I wear in, in the innovation program, I think that, that gives them even and even better tools to uh, rapidly develop, whether it be ideas or concepts, and, and, and have a, a more systematic approach to it. Um, not that it isn't a systematic approach when taught in the class, but this is, this is, these are systems that are directly out of industry, which is really neat. And they're, 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 they've been tested not only in industry, but also in our academic program. So I think even that combination, we actually have a lot of undergraduates that are food science and innovation minors that um, kind of pair those two things because they are such a uh, complementative type programs. So the innovation part wasn't there when you were an undergrad, but you're able to no, do it that, now? Yeah, that, that was developed. The first classes were taught maybe 2007 or something like that. And then really didn't become a program until around 2009, 2010. The kitchen facility that I briefly mentioned, can you just talk a little bit about what that, I, you do use that, right? I'm not... Yeah, that's the, the pilot plant facility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. I mean, that's what we, we have a couple different. We have a we have a brewing pilot facility, and we have the the general food processing pilot facility. And and the food processing pilot facility is um, when we need to do larger non lab scale experiments related to processing of food. We typically go there where there's a whole slew of different types of processing equipment. In fact, we're doing so, a project in about a month, and we're going to be producing about two thousand pounds of, of Blanche frozen produce for a company as a, as a pilot. So would that be just as an example of what you were saying, your capstone project, how do you go from 50 to scale up to 3000? That pilot facility would help you figure that out. Part of it. Yep, absolutely. And even that, you know, being a pilot facility, it's still very small scale. And so really for, for that product, for example, we really needed to get to somewhere around 50,000 units in order to be, to, you know, to get into grocery stores and things like that for this type of product because of the expense of, of not only the product itself, but also the amount of labor it takes 
to produce the product. So is this what the difference is between what you would see in a grocery store and what you might see in a uh, boutique? boutique? Thank you. Yes. (laughs) I mean, is that, is it a matter of scale as much as anything else? Yeah, it's scale. And, um, and, and, you know, as you grow, you have to be aware, hyper aware of, of certain things from quality, from safety. And, and safety doesn't tend to change all that much with scale, but depending upon how it's being processed, that can drastically change something, uh, some sort of variable where you have to take that into account. By safety, you mean the actual everything from bacteria to cleanliness in general to yeah. just making sure each part of the process doesn't overlap with each other and do something funky quality-wise too, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's that There's a constant balance. And, and so as you change a process, you could drastically change a risk associated with a food and, and that could have the consequences of, of illness, you know, foodborne illness in someone. So that, there's that constant awareness. Uh, and the regulations have changed drastically over the last, let's call it 10 years. Do you think the pandemic has had an impact on how people look at that process-wise, if only because there's I don't even know if this is true in the food world, but there's less, there's more people not scaling up and, and trying new things and their own businesses and things like that. Actually, I, th- I, th- I think it was more of people, consumers were, became a little bit more hyper aware of the issues around supply chain. Like that, you know, where, where suddenly I, th- I think a lot of us, I mean, me personally, I've never been, to, been in a situation where you go to a grocery store and there, there wasn't any food you know, or very limited types of food or, or the fact that it, that was a time I remember when my son was going through a phase where he only liked certain soups and um, those soups were not available and they weren't, they didn't come back for quite a while because people had stocked up so much. So I think that made consumers aware that, you know, there's certain benefits obviously to, to having a local food source or locally sourced food uh, within a region. And so I think that has, caused a lot of interest in whether it be locally sourced produce, locally sourced meat, things like that, some of those commodity type things. Um, so we are seeing a lot of interest in that. From a, from a, you know, a food, lots of food companies coming out of this, not necessarily, little, some hobbyist kind of looking at things, you know, making hot sauces and barbecue sauces and pickles and things like that, but nothing substantial as a, as a food source. So what projects are you working on now besides the beer products, projects with your master's students? What do you have on tap yeah. for me? I mean, my, because my position has changed a fair amount, I haven't been able to focus as much on research. I've been doing a lot of teaching. I, t- I taught a lot of classes. There was another grant that I was part of uh, related to the Department of Education, and that was on the innovation side. So we were teaching teachers and administrators in schools um, around our innovation process or about our innovation process and how you apply that towards the K-12 education world. So that took up a fair amount of time. Um, But I've been working with a lot of food companies on very small projects here and there. I do a lot of what are called thermal process validations where the FDA requires you to have scientific proof that when you cook something, it truly, all of it is cooked. So if you're processing, you know, 100,000 pounds of lobster a day, you have to ensure that every piece is cooked. So we do a lot of, I do a lot of thermal process studies for companies. And um, you know, we have a, quite a few different research slash 
educational grants. We just were partners in, my colleague and I, Dr. Machado, are partners in a grant that was funded with USDA and, a, and one of our other New England schools that we work with, uh, food science uh, issuing schools. And that's looking at uh, sanitation and, and teaching a train the trainer for sanitation in, in a whole bunch of different companies and other universities. So sometimes my research isn't just research, a lot of it's education. And so we get fairly big grants to, to educate people about uh, food safety. So where does the circular food system research come in? I'm loosely involved in that. I mentioned by name a lot in the, uh, in the marketing, which I appreciate very much. But, you know, a lot of that is, is trying to get more and more students to understand that, that, that concept, the, how do we, you know, decrease waste of food, you know, all those things, because it is, it's, it's so important. We're producing locally food. Okay, that's great. We're producing food in general. That's great. But how much of it is getting thrown away? And so it's even looking at that, I think, which is really valuable. Um, you know, how to reduce food packaging and food is packaged in so much plastic. And you look at, you know, the fact that you have primary, secondary, even tertiary type packaging where you have to open up all these things. And then how much can be recycled? What has to be thrown out? Where does the food come from? Who can process it? Who can do it safely? You know, there's all these things. And, you know, I I work with the regulatory bodies in the state of Maine, but also some of the legislature to discuss some of the risks around food production and, and doing things, you know, based on science. So I think that's the key part. And that's what we really focus on with our work with Cooperative Extension is it's got to be based on science. There has to be data to show that this is safe, not just we've been doing it for 100 years and no one's gotten sick that we're aware of. It's, it's, we're doing this based on you know, science. So how much do you have to weigh packaging safety so that food stays clean and versus too much packaging and you've got all the issues with the plastic and the recycling and like there's a there's a real balance there and science isn't gonna there's no there's no exact answer you have to have parameters so how do you figure that out yeah unfortunately you know when it comes to those type of things especially with our expectations of shelf life of food and, and things like that as a culture there aren't a whole lot of other substitutes than plastic now we're becoming smarter around plastics uh I think with, with bioplastics, I think that's you know, plant-based pa- plastics, um, plastics that are science going on behind compostable plastics and things like that. I think that's, that's a renewable source of material that I think we really need to explore further and how much more science can be done with that. Even if we could re- reduce you know, the, a portion of the plastic going into that bag with something that's renewable would be great or that breaks down, doesn't, you know, last for 50,000 years or something like that. Even what Maine's doing with plastic bags in grocery stores, I think that's fantastic. I know it's it's an adjustment and, and uh, there are still uses for those plastic bags, but let's strategically use those. Or the styrofoam containers, it, it was kind of an anomaly to me that we were still using styrofoam when we know the environmental detriments of, of that and implications of that. Yeah, it's really interesting. My daughter is, um, she's actually at college this summer because the pandemic has, um, and she said something to some, one of her classmates, like, oh, I'm just so glad I'd never have to see the styrofoam in Maine. And they were floor. They just were like, what you guys get rid of it. I mean, it's, just, it's very interesting, right. That I think in many ways, Maine is ahead of the game in thinking about how to reduce our impact. And 
I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're more connected both to the land and the water. We see that we see much more immediately what happens if we don't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's a kind of a, a protection of the kind of sacredness of, of, of those things in Maine uh, for, for a lot of people. Um, and especially when you talk about uh, the relationship and, and hopefully the growing awareness of uh, tribal lands and, and, and things like that. I, I think that's also something that, that plays a, a fact in this which I think is fantastic, that, that greater awareness of all of those things uh, in the history besides just, you know, the last 200 years, but what about before that? So, yeah, and we're a vacation state, so we, we want to keep it a, a nice place that people want to visit and, and kind of treasure. I love going to meetings and people mention something like, oh, have you ever been to Acadia National Park? You know, places like that, or, or when they mention, you know, the, the new national monument um, up north at Catan and stuff like that. I think that's those are those are exciting to hear that people have heard of that, or are are excited to come visit. Well, Jason, I'm going to hold in my back pocket the the idea of plastic compostability and food safety. So the next time we talk, I can I can find out what you're thinking about that because I think it's sure. a really interesting way to go. This has been really uh, enjoyable for me. I hope you've had a good time. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I love hearing about your work. I don't actually know how you're able to keep track of all the many different, uh, saying that you're a generalist, I think does not at all do justice to all the different things that you're juggling. I think it's really interesting and really great. And I'm, I'm glad that you're able to do all those different things because I think it's pretty important. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for the, the offer to be on, on the show and to participate. Thanks for listening to the Main Science Podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave a rating and review. It will help more people find us and help spread the word about some of the remarkable people doing science in Maine. The Maine Science Podcast has received support from the Maine Technology Institute and is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I receive production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The Discover Main theme is composed and performed by Nick Parker. <laughs>